Today's episode of the Age of Ideas podcast is brought to you by Someday Coaching and Consulting. Someday coaches and consultants provide expertise, guidance, and inspiration to help our clients discover their purpose, build world-class brands, and develop winning marketing strategies. Visit us today at SomedayConsulting.com slash pod for a free consultation. Welcome to Episode 1 of Season 1 of the Age of Ideas podcast, the start of something big. All human beings are born with the same creative potential. Most people squander theirs away on a million superfluous things. I expend mine on one thing and one thing only, my art. Pablo Picasso The Traitorous Eight and the Start of Something Big These were, by their resumes, very superior people. And I thought, gee, maybe there is something here, something more valuable than just being an employee. Arthur Rock, Venture Capitalist on a hot summer morning in San Francisco in 1957, eight of the most talented young scientists in America convened for a clandestine meeting at the Clift Hotel. They gathered over breakfast in the famed Redwood Room, a bastion of the city's old guard. A nervous energy consumed the table, fueled by uncertainty, possibility, and fresh-brewed coffee. The eight worked on developing silicon semiconductors, a groundbreaking new technology at Shockley Semiconductor outside of Palo Alto. The company's founder, Nobel Prize-winning scientist William Shockley, was a brilliant but difficult manager, erratic, mistrustful, and impatient. He had even gone so far as to hire detectives to give his employees lie detector tests, and these employees— Experts in a field in which there were few were frustrated and angry. After considering numerous options, the men decided they must defect. They planned to establish their own company under the leadership of MIT graduate Robert Noyce, a charming, personable 29-year-old electrical engineer from small-town Iowa. Getting Noyce on board hadn't been easy. He was the leader they needed, but he had a young family and he needed to be persuaded to leave his guaranteed paycheck for something with no model, creating a new company in a new field based on nothing more than combined knowledge, faith, ideas, and passion. As Tom Wolfe would later write in Esquire, in this business it dawned on them, capital assets in the traditional sense of plant, equipment, and raw materials counted for next to nothing. The only plant you needed was a shed big enough for the work tables. The only equipment you needed was some kilns, goggles, microscopes, tweezers, and diamond cutters. The materials, silicon and germanium, come from dirt and coal. Brain power was the entire franchise. Brain power was the entire franchise. After the meeting, the group's first move was to approach Shockley's main investor, Arnold Beckman. Beckman had been arguing with Shockley for months about spiraling research costs. Shockley had threatened to take his team elsewhere and find new money. But the eight scientists knew this was a bluff and informed Beckman of their plan to leave. 
despite a trio of positive meetings, Beckman ultimately said he was planning to stick with the senior researcher. Fortunately for the employees, they had also contacted other possible investors, including 30-year-old New York financier Arthur Rock, recipient of a letter they'd written explaining their situation. Their letter intrigued Rock, who was impressed with their backgrounds and experience, and Rock told them he wanted to go out and raise the money necessary for them to start their own company. The scientists agreed, and Rock began by sitting down with a copy of the Wall Street Journal, using it to compile a list of the 35 largest American companies. During the next few months, Rock diligently reached out to every one of them, and one by one, they all said no. Disheartened, ready to move on, Rock received one last lead. An associate suggested he meet with Sherman Fairchild, a colorful, prominent entrepreneur and investor known for unconventional thinking. Founder of Fairchild Camera and Instrument, the son of IBM's first chairman, Fairchild immediately recognized a potent opportunity and backed the men to the tune of $1.5 million. On that June 1957 morning, the eight men didn't have an official contract, so instead, they all signed a crisp dollar bill. One by one, these technology pioneers, Robert Noyce, Julius Blank, Victor Greenwich, Jean Horny, Eugene Kleiner, Jay Last, Gordon Moore, and Sheldon Roberts added a signature to their own Declaration of Independence, framing what would be a history-making choice. They would pursue their visionary ideas inside the structure of a new, innovative company. With the financial backing of Fairchild, the eight men founded Fairchild Semiconductor, in a location just 12 blocks from Shockley's facility. Long before the term Silicon Valley startup existed, this trailblazing operation in Mountain View, California, helped produce technology destined to change the world and incubated extraordinary talent. Two of the traitorous eight, as Shockley called them, Noyce and Moore, would eventually leave to found Intel Corporation, Austrian-born industrial engineer Eugene Kleiner invested in Intel before starting the legendary venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins in 1972, a firm that would one day fund Amazon, Google, AOL, Compaq, Genentech, and many others. As for Arthur Rock, he unknowingly gave birth to the multi-billion dollar industry of tech-based venture capital. In time, Rock himself would lead the investment in Apple. To complete our circle, Apple founder Steve Jobs would consider Robert Noyce a mentor, and even, some would say, a surrogate father. Taken together, the original employees of Fairchild Semiconductor can be said to have created or helped create hundreds of new companies and technologies. A revolution of consciousness and creative capital had begun. A Night in Little Italy. My story begins in January 2008. I'd just returned from Christmas vacation and was in good spirits. The hospitality marketing company I'd been running since college had completed its best year ever. We doubled revenues for a third consecutive year. My partners and I were so encouraged that we decided to expand our office, invest in new computers and phone systems, and hire new employees 
including my older brother, who was tasked with creating a new sponsorship marketing division. Things were looking good. And then, it all fell apart. Mere months after our expansion, the global financial system imploded. We went from having more than a dozen high-profile clients paying tens of thousands of dollars in monthly retainers to zero in roughly a week. Nothing quite prepares you for an experience like that. It immediately resets your priorities and puts you face-to-face with your biggest fears as an entrepreneur, failure, and letting down the people who count on you. We went into survival mode. We had enough cash on hand to carry us through maybe two months, but we needed to figure out a way to cut costs and get some revenue coming in. Time was not on our side. We scrapped, fought, landed a client or two, moved into an office share, cut unnecessary expenses, and survived. And though shared struggle often creates stronger bonds, in this case, that didn't happen. The world had changed. The business had changed, and so had I. The crash and my failure woke me from a self-indulgent slumber and forced me to take a hard look at what I had been doing and why. When I started in the hospitality business, it had been because of my passion for food and for watching people enjoy the experiences we created. Since boyhood, to me, a good meal meant a connection to all of my favorite things in the world. It was love. This passion had led me at age 16 to score a coveted culinary stage in Wolfgang Puck's kitchen at the original Spago on Sunset Boulevard. From there, it took me to Cornell's hotel school and got me in the door for some great hospitality and business training. But somewhere along the way, I'd gotten off track. I'd been seduced by the energy and ego of the entertainment world. I became more interested in short-term material success and getting my name in the newspaper than in building something that was high quality and had deeper meaning, something that would last, something of substance. While my approach had worked for a while, my financial success really was just an enabler allowing me to avoid seeing the real issues with the business and with myself. That challenging experience in 2008 proved pivotal. Early the next year, I made decisions that redirected my path. As 2009 began, it was clear my company was no longer where my passion resided. After much soul-searching, I came to the realization that I needed to get back to what I loved most food and hospitality. But it wasn't until a late night out in New York City when an unexpected encounter unlocked a new creative direction in my life. My cousin Rob and I hit a bar in Little Italy and afterward decided to get some pasta. The only problem? It was after two in the morning. We went to the one place we could find open, and over plates of spaghetti and meatballs, we struck up a conversation with the establishment's owner. I'll call him Gino. Gino told us he was losing money and needed a way to generate more revenue. His restaurant had expanded aggressively from its original location in the building's basement. At three times the size and staff, the costs were too much for him to handle. Gino told us the original space, once a famous hangout for Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack, remained in vintage condition, serving now as a private party space with its own entrance. 
Gino gave us a tour of the former Sinatra haunt, and as he did, a realization hit. If I wanted to get back to my roots in the restaurant business, the best way to do it, the best way to prove what I was capable of, would be to create a pop-up, a temporary restaurant. And here was an amazing space with a legendary past known to almost no one in one of the world's great restaurant cities. I had to give it a shot. The stars seemed to be aligned because everything came together perfectly. Reservations for the multi-day run sold out in under 24 hours. Our concept was not only a financial success, it was covered by local, national, and international media outlets with a feature in W Magazine, a segment on the Cooking Channel, and articles in the New York Post, the New York Times, and Cranes, among others. Reality TV producers descended, but we avoided them like the plague. The opening night, celebrity chef Tom Colicchio of Top Chef was there, along with a who's who of the New York food world. But more rewarding than the prominent clientele was the fact that everyone enjoyed themselves. The room's mood was warm, beautiful, fun. And those present loved the idea that they were enjoying a -a one-of-a-kind dining experience shared with a cozy number of fellow food lovers. It was a memorable night for a burgeoning community of food enthusiasts at exactly the right moment. I was ecstatic. For the first time in my adult life, I was doing something purely for the joy of sharing my passion with the world, rather than to stroke my ego or make money. It felt like I was finally living my purpose. I was manifesting my dreams, making tangible an inspiration that came from deep within. I followed that first pop-up with many more. My team and I launched a temporary art installation restaurant at a hotel construction site in midtown Manhattan, a roaring 20s steakhouse with the amazing chef Seamus Mullen, with whom I would later open a restaurant in London, a downtown version of New York's famous Le Cirque, and a short-run satellite of Cantinetta Antonori, a Tuscan restaurant run by the Antonori wine family, the oldest family-run business in the world. Since then, I've continued to produce curated dining and hospitality experiences, most recently with Dinner Party, a multi-city dining experience in partnership with Vice Media. Dinner Party has featured food from chefs such as Andy Ricker of Pock Pock, Carlo Maracci of Robertus, and Stuart Brioza and Nicole Krasinski of State Bird Provisions. These pop-up enterprises connect with guests because they bring together people, both employees and customers, who care deeply about the project and share a special experience. Creating these pop-ups, doing something that was a pure reflection of my passions, changed my life. The core idea and drive to execute what I envisioned enabled me to realize my potential for the first time. That shift in how I approached the world supercharged all other areas of my existence. I went from being a struggling entrepreneur to heading up a food and beverage business with $150 million in annual revenue to chief marketing officer of a publicly traded hotel company to head of brand and experience at a billion-dollar startup in less than five years. And not only did the pop-up restaurant experience provide me with the opportunity to share my creativity on a large scale while supporting my family, 
It also gave me the gift of fulfillment and the confidence to trust my instincts and enjoy the journey as much as, if not more than, the result. All of that flowed from manifesting an idea that aligned with my purpose. By manifesting, I simply mean making the intangible tangible, making a dream reality, executing on a vision. It changed my life, this idea, but if you think about it, a pop-up restaurant is really just a catering event repackaged with creativity and purpose. However, because we live in a time when purpose-driven ideas have more power than ever before, the concept transcended its components. My goal in this audiobook is to show you how this all works. I want to give you the confidence and knowledge to unleash your superpower, your own creative potential. The Age of Ideas is written and produced by Alan Phillips, with voiceover provided by David A. Wood. To hear more about Alan's ideas and people he digs, check out theageofideas.com slash pod or visit Instagram at Age of Ideas. See you next time. And never forget, life is too short not to live your truth. Your truth.